Okay, Romans 16. Verses 21 to 27. We're going to finally end the book today. Romans 16, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word, that Lord, you would drive home to our hearts the things that are true from this passage, that Lord, you would produce fuel for worship in our lives from the gospel every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So folks, we come to our final study in the book of Romans. This is sermon number 72. I went back and counted them up just to see how many it was. <laughs> 72 sermons. Yeah. We started the study on January 24th, 2018. And it's been two years and ten months. But of course, Pastor Jerome has been preaching half the time, so it's really not two years and ten months. One year and five months. More like it. But for me, as it always is, I think this is my third or fourth time to teach through the book of Romans. It's a, really a wonderful, enriching study in my own heart. As we come to this last study, verses 21 to 27, Paul sends greetings. Now, Paul has all already greeted certain people in the church at Rome. But what he does in verses 21 to 24 is he sends greetings from other people, not himself. He's already done that. But there are people that are with him that want to greet the saints in Rome. And so Paul is going to carry their greetings to those people. Now, Paul is in Corinth when he writes the book of Romans. He's there over three winter months. And... So there's a lot of saints that are with Paul in Corinth as he's writing this letter. And so he tells the Romans who they are. He wants them to know it's not just him that wishes them well and that loves them, but there's a whole host of other people that are with him in Corinth that are wishing him well and love them. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. We all know Timothy, Paul's son in the faith. And so do, so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. This probably refers to fellow Jews, kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, this is an interesting little side note. We find out that Paul didn't actually sit down and, and write with his own pen and, and ink this letter. Paul dictated it. And there was another saint whose name was Tertius, who was the transcriber. And as Paul spoke, he wrote Paul's words down, and that became the book of Romans. Now, sometimes when you get to the end of one of Paul's letters, he'll say, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. 
And what he's saying there is that he's taking up the, the pen and ink in his hand at the very end of the letter and signing off with his own signature. And he'll even tell us in 2 Thessalonians 3 that the way he signs his letter is, Grace be with you all. That was Paul's signature way of signing at the end of one of his letters. But Tertius was used of God to be the one who transcribed this letter. And Tertius greets them in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church. That's interesting. Paul evidently was staying at Gaius' home for three months. Gaius must have had a large, well-equipped home for Paul to be able just to have some space and to move in for a while. And not only Paul, but he was host to the whole church, which tells us that he hosted the church, just like Priscilla and Aquila did, and others in the New Testament. Gaius opened up his home for church meetings. He had the gift of hospitality, it seems. And then he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. The gospel had infiltrated into even the political system with low-ranking officials like the city treasurer coming to Christ. And then he ends up by saying, Cordus, the brother. That's the only designation we have for him. He's a brother in the Lord. Just a run-of-the-mill, ordinary Christian like you and I. But he mentions Cordus. He sends you greetings too. And then he finishes in verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, in the NASB, there's brackets around that. I don't know what version you're reading, but it probably has some note next to verse 24 because the oldest manuscripts don't include verse 24. So what may have happened is that some copyist, remember that the scriptures had to be copied by hand for hundreds and hundreds of years until the printing press was invented. And so some scribe or copyist who had copied over one uh, copy of the book of Romans to another may have accidentally inserted this in the wrong place. But even if he did, it doesn't substantially change anything because the very same thing was written in verse 20. It's just being re repeated again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Which brings us finally to verses 25 to 27, which is really the heart of this final paragraph that we want to meditate on. All the greetings are finished. Paul's warnings about false teachers are concluded. He's ready to sign off on his letter, but he can't do it until he gives one more grand sweeping summary of the gospel. It's as though he just can't bring himself just to say, Amen, we're done, until he talks about the gospel one more time. And the reason he does that is because the gospel is the theme of this book. It's the theme of the book of Romans. In fact, he starts off his letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of of God and then he goes on to talk about that which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son so this book is about the gospel later on in chapter 1 verse 15 he says for my part I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel why not Paul because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. See, chapter 1, verses 1 to 15 are Paul's introduction to his letter. He's telling them a little bit about himself. He's telling them about his plans. 
The letter actually begins in earnest in chapter 1 verse 16. And in verse 16 and 17, Paul summarizes the entire book into two verses. This is the thesis statement of the whole letter. 16 chapters boiled down to two verses. And what he tells us is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Because the gospel is the power of God. And now he's going to unpack that, those two verses through the rest of the letter. And when we started the book of Romans, I gave you an outline. And I'll just repeat it really quickly. Number one, the desperate need of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. The desperate need of the gospel. Chapter 2, the divine solution of the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 425. The divine solution or justification by faith. Number 3, the transforming power of the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 817. How the gospel transforms us. Number 4, the ultimate glory of the gospel. Chapter 8, verses 18 to 27. Number five, the sovereign application of the gospel. Chapter 8, verse 28 to 929. How God sovereignly applies this gospel to his elect. Number six, the gracious invitation of the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 30 to 1021. Number seven, the inclusive plan of the gospel. Where God includes Gentiles along with Jews. That's chapter 11 verses 1 to 36. And then finally number 8. The practical outworking of the gospel. Chapter 12 verse 1 all the way to 1513. And then from 1514 to the rest of the letter. This is his conclusion. We have an introduction in the first 15 verses. We have a conclusion in the last chapter and a half. And in between those two you have the meat of the unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when Paul gets to the very end of his letter, he's going to summarize one more time this great gospel that he's been teaching on for 16 chapters. So we get a grand summary right here. Notice in verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to what? My gospel. <laughs> and let me tell you all about it one more time before I say amen. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will cause you to overflow with joy and gratitude and worship for Jesus Christ as we review the elements of the gospel again today. I'm going to give you seven elements of the gospel that come from these three verses. The first one is the function of the gospel. What does it do? Well, Paul says, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel. That's its function. It establishes you. Establishes who? He says you. Well, who is he writing to? He's not writing to lost sinners. He's writing to Christians, believers in Rome. We know that from chapter 1, verse 7. Those who are beloved of God called the saints. That's who he was writing to. These are believers in Jesus Christ. And that's a little interesting because most of the time we think the function of the gospel is to save the lost. And it is, no doubt about that. But here is another function of the gospel that we don't really think about too often. It is to establish saints. Establish them. And that word establish sometimes is translated strengthen. It depends on your translation. Some go with strengthen, some go with establish. But basically, it means that God uses the gospel to take you and plant you solidly so that you become 
firm in your faith, strong in your faith because of this gospel that he has been teaching for 16 chapters. So it establishes believers. Understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ not only saves from sin, but establishes and sanctifies Christians. And that's why I think it is so important for Christians to hear the gospel over and over. Sometimes we get the idea, well, yeah, I, I learned the gospel when I first got saved. I don't need that anymore. I want the deeper things. Folks, you can't go any deeper than this gospel. This gospel is the heart of your Bible. It's the central core message of the scripture. And that's why I'm glad that we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Because even if we're not teaching on something directly uh, founded on the gospel, maybe we're teaching on good works or something. But when we come to the end of our service, we are going to be preaching the gospel every single time we observe the Lord's table. Because that is the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So the gospel is the message by which we enter the kingdom on earth and by which we persevere so that we finally enter the kingdom when we gather in heaven. Praise the Lord for his gospel. I would encourage you to preach that gospel to yourself on a regular basis. When you're taking your time of prayer, just start recounting what the gospel is all about. Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He justifies me freely by his grace through the redemption which is found in Christ Jesus. And just start or, uh, declaring to yourself the great truths of the gospel. I am as righteous as Jesus Christ because God sees me through the blood of his son. You know, that releases you from guilt and that helps you to remind you of the truth that you have in Jesus Christ. So that is the function of the gospel, not only to save sinners, but to establish saints. And I hope that you're allowing the gospel to establish you day by day. Number two, the subject of the gospel. Who is it about? Jesus Christ. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Paul links the gospel with the preaching of Jesus Christ together. Why? Because the gospel is made known through the preaching of Christ. The gospel is all about Jesus. Without Jesus, you don't have a gospel. Jesus is the embodiment of the gospel. There's no gospel without him. So the gospel is really about a person. Right? When you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says it's all about how Christ died for sins, how Christ was buried, how Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, and not only those historical truths, but how those truths impact our lives. So Christ is the gospel. In fact, that's what Paul told us at the very beginning of his letter when he started off. He says, I was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. That's what the gospel is concerning. Concerning God's Son. Number three, he tells us about the mystery of the gospel. He says, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. So, the gospel is connected to a mystery, Paul says. And in the Bible, a mystery 
is something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. And here Paul says it was hidden for long ages past. It was kept secret for long ages past, but now has been manifested. So what was it that was hidden for long ages past, but now has been revealed? It wasn't seen in the Old Testament, but has been fully revealed now in the New Testament. Well, there are several passages in the New Testament that talk about this mystery, and I want to look at a few of those with you clear, quickly. The, the one that's most clear, I think, is Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go there. Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 6. Paul says, by referring to this, when you understand, I'm sorry, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. So by other generations, he's talking about the Old Testament ages. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, and here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what was the mystery that people didn't understand in the Old Testament and now they get it? It's that Gentiles are equal to Jews in their spiritual standing before God. They're fellow members of the body, fellow heirs, fellow partakers of the promise. In other words, Jews aren't like a, a cut above the Gentiles in the kingdom. Sometimes we talk about Messianic Jews and we kind of are in awe. Oh, wow, that person's a Messianic Jew. <laughs> Wait a minute. You have just as equal a standing as any Messianic Jew. They're, they're not any closer to God than you are. We have the same spiritual promises and blessings given to all of us as Gentiles that the Jews have in Christ. So there was a mystery that it was hidden in Old Testament ages but when Christ came, now we can see that clearly. And there's more. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 27. Paul writes, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of His glory, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery? The riches of the glory of this mystery? Paul says that mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Amen. Christ in you. Amen. Now that was something that the Old Testament saints didn't understand. They didn't know there was coming a day when God would send His very Son who after He rose from the dead would come to dwell in believers. The indwelling presence of Christ. And He says that fact that Christ is in you that is the hope of glory our hope of glory is that Christ is dwelling in us folks do you have any evidence that Jesus Christ is actually dwelling in you good because <laughs> if you have no evidence that Christ is dwelling in you you don't have the hope of glory glory our hope that we're headed for glory is contained in the truth that Jesus Christ is in us. In fact, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians, if Christ is not in you, then you're none of His. And he says that, um, you know, I'm going to go back and read it because I'm, I'm not going to quote it unless I do correctly. 
Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or don't you recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you indeed fail the test. So if Christ is not in you, you have failed the test. The, the whole test of whether someone is a true child of God is whether Jesus Christ dwells in that person. So that's one of the mysteries of the New Testament. And then Paul goes on in Colossians 2 and verse 2, and he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So Christ actually is God's mystery. See, the people in the Old Testament saw through a glass darkly. In fact, Peter even writes of this. He says the prophets, they were prophesying, but they didn't know who the person was or the time that they were writing about and, and speaking about. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that it was about Jesus Christ, God's son. They, they knew that God was speaking through them, but they just couldn't understand the full-orbed message that he was giving them. But, you know, we are so blessed to live on this side of the cross because we can see with crystal clarity what the gospel's all about and who Christ is and what he's come to do, to do for us. So there we have three passages speaking about the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ himself and the full, full standing of Gentiles with Jews within the body of Christ. Number four, back to Romans 16. Number four, the foundation of the gospel. Let's go back here. He says, and by the scriptures of the prophets. I believe there we've got the foundation. Even though people in the Old Testament had scriptures that pointed to the gospel, they didn't understand them. But they were there. They are embedded in our Old Testament scriptures. And the prophets would speak about this gospel to come in at least a couple of different ways. Sometimes they'd give direct statements direct statements about this gospel such as Genesis 3.15 where even though the seed of the serpent would strike at the heel of the seed of the woman the seed of the woman would crush his head and that's a veiled statement of the gospel in the third chapter of the, our Bible it's the first one which speaks about the gospel or Psalm 22 where he says that all of his bone, bones are out of joint, my hands and my feet they have pierced. Direct statements where David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking in the first person, but it's actually about Jesus Christ, who had come hundreds of years later. Or Isaiah 53, where he says that he has been pierced through for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being has fallen upon him. By his scourging we are healed. The whole, the whole chapter, Isaiah 53, is direct statements describing the cross of Jesus Christ and its effects. Or Daniel chapter 9. There's another direct statement of scripture about the coming of the Messiah, the, the prince. But then also these prophets would write and speak about the gospel to come through types. Are you familiar with what a type is? It's like a picture, a shadow, um, a pictorial prophecy embedded in the Old Testament that throws light on Jesus Christ and New Testament truth. I'll give you an example, the Passover. 
1 Corinthians 5 tells us that Christ is our Passover. The Passover, not only the Passover lamb, but the whole Passover itself was a picture of Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish for us by God's wrath passing over us because we've taken the, the blood of the lamb and applied that blood to our souls through faith and now God's wrath has passed over. The destroying angel is gone. That's just one. The, the uh, high priesthood was a picture of Christ as our high priest. Melchizedek, I believe, was a type of Christ who is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. All of the animal sacrifices were pictorial prophecies. There were pictures of the ultimate and perfect sacrifice to come. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Noah's Ark, that's another one, yes. We are sheltered in Christ who is our ark from the wrath of God. Abraham offering up his only son. A picture of the Father offering up Jesus Christ for our sin. You can just go through one after the other after the other. Uh, the serpent lifted up on the pole so that everyone who looked to him would be healed just like we look to Christ and are spiritually healed. I mean, the, the, the Old Testament is like a picture book. <laughs> You know, for little kids, they like pictures, and they learn through pictures. Well, we're like little kids, and we go to the Old Testament and find picture after picture after picture that makes the gospel plain. But to the people in the Old Testament, they didn't see it. They couldn't see it yet until the reality had finally come. Jesus is the reality. Those things were shadows. But the reality finally came in the person of Jesus Christ. So there we have the foundation of the gospel. The gospel is not some newfangled thing that just arrived on the scene out of nowhere. It was preceded by hundreds of years of the prophets preparing God's people for this gospel. Well, let's go to number five, the mandate of the gospel. We find that in verse 26. According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations... The gospel of Jesus Christ came with a mandate. God commanded that this gospel should be preached to all the Gentile nations of the earth. Not just the Jewish people, but the whole world. Jesus, when he was giving his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 14, he said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And then at the beginning of Matthew 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All the nations, right? Or Mark 16. That we are to preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves shall be damned. But this gospel, we must preach it to all creation, he says. In Luke chapter 24, Luke includes his own version of this. Verse 47, Jesus says, Repentance for forgiveness of sins is going to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before he ascends to heaven. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So this is the mandate of the gospel and that mandate is still with us today. 
we haven't actually fulfilled this mandate. There are still nations of the earth who don't have the gospel. That's why I'm so happy that we are partnering with other people who are actually taking the gospel to unreached people groups of the world, like Russell Cochran and his family. They're preparing right now because they're going to go somewhere with this gospel to a people that have never heard of Jesus Christ. That's the command of Jesus Christ to his church. And there are people in our community who don't know about the gospel. You know, I grew up as a, a professing Christian, I guess. I, I, was, I was involved in the Catholic Church growing up. But you know, I had lots of ritual. I knew how to do one of these when I went inside the church. I know how to go to the confession. But I didn't know the gospel either. And I was 19 years old before I really understood the gospel. And there's no excuse for it because I have, there was Bibles in my home. I could have turned on the radio and heard it anytime I wanted to, but I just never did. I was not interested. But someday, or some, yeah, one day someone finally got my attention and explained the gospel to me and God drove it home to my heart. And there are people here in Rancho Cordova or Natomas or your city, wherever you live, that were just like me. They don't know the gospel either. And we are under God's mandate to bring this gospel to them as well. Let's look at number six. The outcome of the gospel. He tells us here in Romans 16. At the end of verse 26. He says leading to obedience of faith. This is the outcome that God desires. This is the outcome that God produces from the gospel. Whenever the gospel has truly taken root in a person's life, this will be the outcome. It will lead to the obedience of faith. A lot of people profess to believe the gospel, but they have no obedience to Christ to show in their life. And I would... I would warn that person that they might be deluded into thinking that they're saved and when they're actually not. A person who is converted, he won't be perfect, but he will want to obey Jesus and he will take steps to obey Christ. Christ is Lord and the person who comes to Christ and believes him to be Lord must be willing to submit his will to Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian but are unwilling to submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord, folks, you're not a Christian. You may think that you are. You may hope that you are, but you're not. You need to be converted. You need the gospel to lead you to the obedience of faith. That's what it does whenever it takes root in a person's life. Notice it's the obedience of faith. It's not obedience alone without faith because that doesn't glorify God. If a person is able to obey Jesus without faith, which isn't going to happen, but if he could, that would give that person glory. Look what I did. Look at my good works and how I'm able to obey Jesus. But what about the person who has faith but no obedience? That doesn't glorify God either because it doesn't show how powerful God is to transform a life and show how worthy God is to produce this obedience of faith. So both of these things need to come together. Faith which produces obedience. That's what brings glory to God. See, faith is a receiving gift. It's a depending grace. Faith enables us to receive the grace of God and then it's funneled out of our lives in obedience. But if a person says they believe the gospel but doesn't obey the gospel, their faith is somehow deficient. Something's wrong with it. It's either very sick 
or it's non-existent. It's dead, dead faith. So let's make sure, brothers and sisters, that our faith is alive, that we are actually doing something with our faith, that it's leading to good works, it's leading to obedience. In the hard places of life, all right, number seven, the goal of the gospel. Last line here. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Now he summarizes the gospel in verse 25 and 26 and then he shows us what that gospel leads to in verse 27. It leads to giving glory to God. It's as though Paul is an orchestra conductor. And you've, you've heard these great orchestras, right? And they lead to this tremendous crescendo at the end of the song where you've got all, all the instruments are playing at once and you've got the drums going and you've got the cymbals crashing and then the song ends. This great crescendo. That's the way I look at the book of Romans. That's how Paul's ending the book with this great crescendo of praise. The gospel leads to the glory of God. See, what we have here is a doxology. And the word doxology comes from two Greek words. Doxa and logos. Doxa means glory. Logos means word. So a doxology is a word that ascribes glory to God. That's what Paul is doing. He's ascribing glory to God through his words. And he's already given us one doxology in this book, which was back in chapter 11 a very well-known doxology where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. But here's another doxology, and it's fitting that he ends the entire book with it. To the only wise God. Now this doesn't mean there's lots of legitimate gods out there and he's the only one that's wise. That's not what it means. It means he is the only true God and he just happens to be very, very wise. Through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I don't want you to miss this. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not our salvation. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not our personal happiness. The ultimate goal of the gospel is God's glory. The gospel is a lot like our Bible. A lot of times people read the Bible thinking that the Bible is all about us. You make a big mistake if you think that. You'll make mistakes in interpreting the Bible if you think it's all about you. It's not. It's all about God. It's God's self-revelation of himself. God wanted to reveal who he was, so he gave us a book. Now, yeah, there's lots of things in this book that will pertain to you, but you're not the central, you're not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story, and God wants to communicate something about himself to mankind, so he gave us a revelation in a book. This book is about God. The Bible is a God-centered book. And the gospel is a God-centered message. God wanted to get glory for himself, and so he invents a good news, a gospel by which he will save sinners. You know, God does everything for his own glory. 
The reason God created the universe was for his own glory. The reason why God permitted the fall of man was for his glory. The reason God chose one nation of Israel above the others to bring about his redemptive plan was for his own glory. The reason why God sent his son into the world for, was for his own glory. The reason Jesus died and rose again was for the glory of God. The reason why God sanctifies saints and justifies sinners is for his glory. The reason why God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells will be for his glory. God is a very God-centered being. We just are very, very thankful that we are in Christ because we're under the spout where the blessings flow out in Christ Jesus. But God creates this whole world as a theater by which he might display to the universe his great glory. And when I talk about glory, I mean his perfections that he puts on display. That's what I mean by the glory of God. And by perfections, we can talk about his attributes, his wisdom, and justice, and righteousness. His grace, mercy, love, kindness, generosity. And you can just go down the list, all the things that the women have been studying for, for weeks and weeks and weeks about the attributes of God. That's his glory. And whenever God takes who he is and reveals those things to his creatures, he's putting his glory on display. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. So Paul ends with worship here. Amen. He ends his book with worship, and that's the way I want to end our service today. I want to end it with worship. And we've, we've got lots of time left, brothers and sisters. We're going to take a good amount of time just to enter into the presence of the Lord and worship and praise Him. I'm going to get my guitar out, and we are going to just spend some time with the Lord, giving Him the glory that He deserves.